0: Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance, in association with Hogan Lovells.
1: Hi, and welcome to That Privacy Podcast, the podcast created for people who like to think and chat about privacy in the context of the many interesting, surprising, and challenging changes that are taking place in the world today. My name is David Longford. I run OneTrust's Emerging Markets team. And as ever, I'm joined by my colleagues, Alexis Katafidis, lead privacy counsel at OneTrust, and Eduardo Oostran, partner and global co-head of the Hogan Levels privacy and cybersecurity practice. Morning to you both. How's things? Hello.
0: Morning,
2: David. Morning, Eduardo. Good morning to you both. and uh, Nice to speak with you again
1: this year. Absolutely. First first podcast of 2021. So happy new year to you and, and obviously to all our listeners. Yeah,
2: happy and new year.
1: And for anyone, I just thought I'd start by saying for anyone who's listened to either Alexis Eduardo or myself speak at events, you know, podcasts, in-person events, whatever, in in the last few years, one of the the key things that often crops up is a reflection on the fact that the pace of change, meaning whatever, regulatory change, technology change, keeps increasing and um, the the impact that has on the, the work we do and obviously just the impact that has on the world. And so I think um, very few people would disagree that, the, you know, the year 2020, that that's become apparent for everybody, not just people working in our space. It's um, it's a very fast uh, changing picture in everybody's lives. So in terms of today's focus, what we're going to do is take a quick look at, at 2020, um, less of a deep review, more of a few snapshots of key issues that perhaps we've worked on. Uh, Eduardo, perhaps that you've kind of consulted with your clients Um in an expected and unexpected ways this year, uh, in the last year, and get kind of our views on the key privacy topics that will be priorities for organisations and, and privacy teams in 2021. So, yeah, we're going to kind of rattle through a few things and hopefully pick up a few key issues. So um, let's dive into the topics uh, to, to get started. Now, the first we wanted to look at is international data transfers. And I wanted to start with um, kind of the lens of the, the the landmark Shrems 2 decision, which I had to check the date it was back in July um, 2020. Seems like a couple of weeks ago, but uh, yeah, that was <laughs> a while ago. And I think we all did various kind of quick reaction webinars, events, uh, speaking um, opportunities in in the days after. and as I remember, the decision was mostly discussed at that point for, you know, the regulatory consequences, the next chapter in the safe harbor story, if you like. Um, and, you know, the actual collection of statements on the various data transfer mechanisms included were you know, maybe a surprise in that privacy shield was ruled to be invalid. Um, but as we moved into 2021, I think there's a bigger picture here, which I just wanted to kind of throw over to you both to discuss. Uh, so you've got the, the the regulatory piece, but you've also got the, the questions about how we trust organizations we work with, how we evaluate vendors, and how, you know, much of a different picture our organizations um are, are faced with in, in in this year. So there's kind of two threads in my mind here. So let's just start by discussing that. Um Eduardo, how do you remember the the, the Shrems 2 decision and uh, where do you think we are now in, in perspective?
2: Yes, well, friends, too. I think we can say that the the dust has now settled after that um, groundbreaking decision of last summer, and the ground, you know, the, the dust has settled, and now we are seeing perhaps the devastation caused by the um, by the decision. Maybe I'm getting too dramatic here, but <laughs> the problem is that uh, we we are seeing now that. Effectively, after all these years of restrictions on international data transfers, this decision has basically given all of us, all organizations involving international data transfers, a big to-do list in and which perhaps can be summarized mm-hmm. as undertaking some kind of international data transfers assessment where you really need mm-hmm. to now more than ever look at where the data is going, how it is being protected. Is it really being protected by the mechanisms that you use? How far do you need to go in trying to tackle government access to data? And how do you demonstrate that you are doing that? So I think that, that's the the work that now needs to be done once the, as I'm saying, the, now that the dust has settled on this point. And it's always
1: been discussed um... Uh, So initially discussed in terms of an EU-US relationship, but this, of course, has impacts for global data transfers, right, Alexis? Can you sort of unpack a little bit and explain why this is bigger than just an EU-US decision?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, as you you outlined, obviously, uh, you made a mention there at the very beginning of um, Safe Harbor as well, which... um, yeah, there's always uh, some nice context to throw to throw into this discussion because, um, of course, that's where you know a, a lot of this analysis first began. Um, and you know, we had Safe Harbor, and then we had the revamped Privacy Shield, which um, also came under scrutiny. And of course, you know, those those two frameworks were specifically around EU-US data transfers. So I think. You know, that's, that's where the focus has tended to lie over the last few years. But, of course, the aside from the invalidation of the EU-US privacy shield, um, one of the questions that was referred, or several of the questions that were referred, were around the use of standard contractual clauses, which are, I mean, I think Eduardo has probably, um, I don't know how many Hundreds, thousands of standard contractual clauses you've seen over the years um, are one of the main mechanisms uh, that organizations utilize to transfer personal data from the EU to any country that is deemed a third country, which are plenty on the list. Um, There aren't that many that have received an adequacy decision. Um, And, of course, you know, the adequacy decision uh, permits a very similar free flow of data that exists within the European Union to that country. Um, But there aren't that many jurisdictions on the adequacy list. Um, So, organizations have to look to the framework that's in place, obviously before it was the Data Protection Directive, now it's the GDPR, and have a look at the mechanisms that are outlined. And one of that, one of those is the standard contractual clauses. And so, you know, when we're having a look at the global nature of business today, uh, data is flowing so freely um, across borders that standard contractual clauses have been the go-to mechanism Um, and so there therein lies the the global impact of the decision and you know this is uh, i think what eduardo was you know uh, alluding to in terms of what is to come for organizations on that big to-do list um as eduardo described in terms of that those transfer impact assessments um now there's a a few wider considerations for organizations in terms of the measures that they're going to put in place. Well, I suppose first, obviously, as Eduardo described, understanding your data flows, um, understanding where that data is and where it's traveling to, um, and then carrying out that assessment, not just of the measures that are in place to uphold the same protections as afforded under EU law, um, but also carry out that assessment of wider pieces of legislation and frameworks within those third countries that data is being transferred to, which I think is uh, is a bit of a challenge. Uh, something that we've been doing um, some work on as well, trying to assist with that research element of understanding what laws and frameworks outside of just data protection legislation may impact again, as Eduardo described. Um, you know, public authorities' access to data requests, um, for data oversight mechanisms. You know, what kind of regulatory bodies are in place? Uh, you know, remedies for data subjects. Uh, so there's there there is quite a lot on that to-do list. Um, at the moment. I don't know
2: how you've seen it over the last couple of months, Eduardo, from that perspective. Well, I think the really important thing here is that, of course, we are one month or two away from seeing the new, the final version of the new standard contractual clauses. Mm -hmm. and the, the, The real change here is not simply that we have a new version of the standard contractual clauses. The real change is that we're going from a tradition of signing standard contractual clauses and putting it in the, in, in the drawer or the digital drawer and never thinking about it again, to a situation where we now need to look very carefully at first which module you need to use, how you can actually comply with with the requirements as, a, as an exporter, as an importer in your, in your uh, position as a, pr- a controller, as a processor, as sub- processor. How to supplement the standard contractual clauses to the extent that you need to supplement them with additional measures and need additional safeguards. And then once you figure that out, then it's when you put them in in place. So it's a, it's it's an understatement almost to say that these are standard contractual clauses because <laughs> standard,
1: the standard
2: standards. So, yes, something you don't even need to think about. But there is a lot of thinking that I think is going to be devoted to the new standard contractual process to get it right. And it depends on how much pressure, I guess, organizations are under to really uh, look at this properly and quite often we are asked so how do how do you manage that process and I think it's really important to look at what your priorities are whether the big transfer are we talking of big intra-group data transfers are we talking of uh, big vendors data transfers or ven- uh, vendors to vendors you know processors to some processors so each organization they need to look a little bit strategically at their situation and make it manageable but ultimately the new world of Standard contractual clauses is, is is going to be very different to the old world of, of the standard contractual
1: clauses. I think. And and just hearing you describe that process, uh, Eduardo, as, as it is and will be with with you know so-called new standard contractual clauses, um, and doing assessments of third countries, etc. Would you say that your clients are kind of seeing just this as the burden being passed to them, uh, into in order to conduct uh, assessments of? data transfers between two countries and are they sort of asking you where this might go or are people kind of have people been preparing for this sort of um very fluid situation for a while now
2: i think to be honest um, organizations are still coming to terms with the fact that they need to assess to what extent other countries laws have the potential for indiscriminate access to data by by government agencies and I think uh, they're still trying to to figure out how to do it and some large organizations will say okay well so our big transfers are to the US or to India or to China whatever and then they they may look at those countries. Mm, Vendors and service providers will be looking at it as a commercial issue and say okay we need to make sure we can reassure our customers, that wherever our data centers are or our support services are located and have access to data, are locations where the data is protected no matter what. And and they, are, I, what I'm seeing is some uh, leading service providers preempting those questions from their own customers. So uh, we are at a at a stage where there is a lot of strategic thinking going on before. Acting. But, of course, we are already seeing or um, uh, trying to undertake these assessments of countries' laws uh, around the world. And, Eduardo,
0: just uh, honing in on um, the kind of other point, obviously, you talked about the, the European Commission's um, draft set standard contractual clauses. Obviously, earlier this week, um, we're kind of uh, uh, 20th of Jan today, but... Um, we saw the EDPS and EDPB release their joint opinions on the SCC's. Um, but we also have that other side of the EDPB guidance on their well, their recommendations on the supplementary transfer tools that can be incorporated as well as their um, essential equivalence guidance. But I think, you know, a lot of organizations were obviously eagerly anticipating that guidance since the Schrems II decision. We had that draft. Um, released in November, consultation period extended. And, I mean, just on a timing front, um, you know, I I would imagine maybe over the next month or two, we see that finalized version come out, maybe even sooner. uh, but do you expect, have organizations been holding back a little bit until seeing that finalized, those finalized recommendations for the EDPB? Are you are you personally expecting much change? I know, generally speaking, there isn't too much change, but on this occasion, would we expect more change?
2: No, I think in, in essence, the, the final version of the standard contractual process Will be very similar to the draft that was published at the end of uh, November, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, yeah, the the, we, the prudent thing, of course, is to to wait for the final version rather than trying to draft a contract today using the the draft version and then finding out that uh, you've got things missing. But um, for that reason, our our position has been: let's treat the draft. As a as a peak pre- preview of what is coming, let's um, get the the engine running to make sure mm-hmm. that you can uh, adapt and you can sign new intergroup agreements, so mm-hmm. you can have a new uh, contract with your processors or your sub-processors, But don't rush to to start using the the draft version because of course it's it's not finished. But mm-hmm. um, As I said, we are one, maybe two months away from having this finalized. We know that 90% of of it will be essentially the same and Mm -hmm. therefore you can be strategically thinking and and preparing for it and that's the the right thing to do and then of course you have a whole year to implement the new version of the model process. I don't think we need to rush and we need to panic, but I think we need to be alert to the fact that things are changing.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Good stuff. Okay, that's a really good start to our quick snapshot uh, series of of, uh, issues from 2020. Let's move on to another, which um, there's not uh, as much dramatic uh, developments to report on, but I wanted to make sure everybody's up to speed on where we are with it. So we're we're talking about the proposal for an e-privacy regulation, um mm-hmm. what are the latest developments i believe there was some expectation alexis you were telling me that, that this would happen or things would happen in the last presidency of the council mm-hmm. of the european union which is i think held by germany and now yeah. as of january we've switched to portugal um what happened when <laughs> in the last six months and and what might happen in uh, in the first six months of 2021
0: yeah um i think i think it's probably me that was um Maybe a bit optimistic uh, no. <laughs> and put forward that that expectation that we'd see something happen last year. I think I've probably said the same thing each year for the last three years. Um, but uh, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. So there was there was a little bit of um, momentum behind it, as you were describing, David. Uh, you know, six seven months ago, with the new presidency coming in. I think that's probably always been the case just because the e-privacy uh, regulation of the draft has been put to the top of a lot of the um, presidency's agendas over the last couple of years. Um, but I think uh, there was a renewed uh, feeling that this could make it through um, on this occasion. It, it wasn't to be. However, uh, there were various Differences um, from member states and differing views on uh, what kinds of provisions should be included and how to tackle uh, issues around, you know, legal bases of processing. So um, it has, again, as you as you noted, know, David passed on to the new presidency. Um, I think we will see that uh, official version of a new proposal being released, and talks will resume again. Uh, 2021 could be the year. Uh, I could be. Maybe I, I, might hold, I might hold back from saying <laughs> anything further than that. Uh, I don't know whether uh, you've got a feeling on it, Eduardo. I know we've talked about it on this podcast a couple of times. Uh, of the last little while that we've been doing these. Eddie, any expectation from your side that
2: 2021 is gonna be the year? Well, it's been a bit shocking, hasn't it? That the, not so much in fact, that we don't have any privacy regulation because these things take time. But what is shocking is how little things moved last year. So we, we are pretty much where we were this time last year. So a whole year went by, and it's a bit like I guess what what happened to the entire world, at least in the first half of of twenty twenty, that uh, we were all paralyzed by by COVID and and this new situation. But um, the whole e privacy regulation legislative process was essentially paralyzed, and I'm not mm. sure if if it's really moving again. Maybe it is, but I think that the point here is that there are very difficult policy-related decisions to be made in this process. So um, the GDPR was more about um, finding uh, the right balance and finding uh, a comprehensive um, framework that um, could deal with all the data protection issues and all that. E-privacy is much more political than that because it's about the struggle between the, the digital economy on the one hand, and pre- privacy as a sort of as a, as a threat to or, or the threats to e privacy, and it, it's it's a difficult one, and we're stuck with concepts and, and principles that haven't worked for years, like cookie consent and and this kind yeah. of thing. And I, I wonder whether someone will be brave enough to say maybe we should change directions here and and, there, and and go back to the drawing board and come up with a completely different approach to regulating e-privacy. Mm-hmm. And I've always said, if I'm not trying to, to hear, um, make the point that, uh, I don't know, there shouldn't be regulation or anything like that. I'm not trying to be, a, I'm, I'm not a, trying to lobby anybody. I'm just trying to flag up the fact that uh, cookie consent has not really worked. It's complicated things. And, and I know that um, companies are, are struggling and I think a lot of mechanisms uh, have been uh, put in place to try to achieve this. Some work better than others. And you would think that uh, by now either the whole thing was working or, or it wasn't. But I, I think we need a little bit of Imagination to uh, in relation to e privacy and that may resolve the deadlock that we have had for several years now. You know this 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 predates the GDPR uh, coming into effect. This is from twenty seventeen and here we are in twenty twenty one in the in, you know in a, in a digital world and we don't have a a, a digital an e privacy regulation and the e privacy directive is really. Uh, not, I guess, not surviving the, the test of time so well. And therefore, some some new thinking, I think, is needed. That's my view.
1: And, and the ePrivacy Directive, what year was that from? It's early
2: 2000s, is it? That... Well, it was originally uh, passed in 20, 2001 and then revised in 20, 2009. So the latest version is from 2009. You know, right. the world of 2009 was very different to 2021. So I think we need to bear that in mind.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Lots to look forward to if things if the wheels start finally moving in 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 the world of e privacy. And we'll obviously keep everyone updated uh, with that as we move through the year. Uh, let's move on now to. Um, well, a topic where we have had some movement, which is uh brexit um we started the year with the withdrawal agreement and we kind of topped and tailed the year. we ended with the uh I think it was the trading cooperation agreement, which nobody refers to it as <laughs> but the final uh, the final uh, deal over brexit was done in December. so the question um throughout for privacy professionals has always been really uh, well the main question really has always been about, um, data transfers and, and adequacy. But of course, there's sub questions. I'm sure One Stop Shop comes in, which we're gonna to touch on in a wider context in a minute, and various other kind of complications that need working out um, now that Brexit has been done, as they say. So where are we now, uh, Edward, Let's start with you. Um, can you just recap the uh, prospect for UK adequacy? What needs to happen to, to to get over that finish line, if you like? And, and what other issues are there in the bag apart from adequacy?
2: Okay, so now um, we are now in what I think we could call the bridging period, or I don't know, post-transition period, where the UK obviously has left the EU, the transition period uh, has gone, and we are in a in a sort of extra extra time that the UK and the EU agreed of up to six months, so we're talking about until the end of June, you know, 30th of June being the deadline, for the EU to give the UK adequacy. And if not, then we are back to that uh, not affecting prospect of the UK being a third country, which is not adequate, and therefore, um, like any other country, Outside the EU that needs to be treated uh, as uh, unsafe for European data. So hopefully we won't we won't be there at the end of June. But what needs to happen between now and then is that the European Commission needs to take a view, decide whether the UK data protection framework. Is close enough or good enough from a European Union perspective? The data protection authorities need to agree with that, and then the formalities will be done. I guess quite quite quickly because there isn't much time left. And what are the prospects that are happening? Well, I've always been optimistic about it, um, trying to take the politics out of it, because the most obvious reason is that the UK has identical data protection legislation to the European Union. By and large, it's identical. It was it was the same um, law before Brexit and the law hasn't changed. So therefore, it, it, you have to think that the, the level of protection for personal data that the UK had when it was a member of the EU and the level of protection for personal data that it has today is the same. So logic suggests that an adequacy should be given, but of course we all know that um, you cannot take the politics out of it. And ultimately, it's a matter of making sure that the EU feels comfortable with with that decision. O- on the whole, I'm more on the side of yes, adequacy will be granted. There may be some conditions, and maybe with some periodic reviews, and maybe some uh, carve-outs. I don't know, and I- we'll see. But I think it will be granted. But interestingly, the European sorry, the the, the information commissioners office and the UK government themselves are saying but just prepare just in case we don't get it just prepare for a situation where the UK is not adequate.
1: Alexis can companies really prepare for that or is that prepare word a bit of a misnomer here is it more of a uh-huh. quickly if uh, we fall off the cliff? Yeah no. it's
0: a, I think um, you know obviously it's, it's nothing that uh, you know, quite a surprise We'd, we've had discussions over brexit for a few years now so uh there there's in a way there's there's nothing new to report here i mean the 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 preferable side of things is the uh, you know the up, up to 6 month period for the continued free flow of data like eduardo was saying so i think there's you know um that was very very much welcomed. I think a lot of our customers are keeping their fingers crossed for an adequacy decision. Um, But at the same time, you know, given what we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, in terms of, you know, having a look at all your data transfers, um, I think, you know, this is an important consideration to be borne in mind uh, over the next few months. Uh, And you can undertake some, you know, some preparations in in that respect to make sure that, you know, your data flows are mapped out to um, the UK um, and likewise um, elsewhere. So I think it's it's still a little bit wait and see, but at the same time, given the focus on international data transfers at the moment, in a sense, you know, this, this is something that that can be tied with that work that's happening at the moment and has been happening over the last few months anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to um, kind of 2021 and, and what we're going to see. So I want to first talk about a, um, uh, a topic which everybody kind of cares about but has been perhaps oh, – perhaps we a bit overhyped in the – the early GDPR era, and that's enforcement. So, you know, before GDPR came in into, into force, uh, 4% fines was the word on the street. Everyone was throwing that around. Um, not Alexis and I, and I'm sure not Eduardo, but we gave more pragmatic, realistic uh, information out. But <laughs> there was a lot of kind of talk about how companies would be subject to to, to fines for lots of different um, uh, issues uh, in, in their data privacy programs. I remember Alexis we, a couple of years ago, uh, the start of 2019. So within the first year of GDPR coming into force, when the Kneel issued its 50 million euro fine, at that point mm-hmm. that was a bit of a, a big, you know, um, turning point. Let's say there, there wasn't so many, there weren't so many large fines, certainly not that scale. But even a lot smaller, sort of million um, million euros, let's say, fines happening at that point. So that was pretty um, pretty interesting. Two years later, January 2021, I thought I'd just take a quick look at the enforcement landscape in in the start of this year, and I think it's quite different from from then. I don't know whether you'd agree. Um, we even in January we've seen a 10 million euro fine in Lower Saxony for um, a company which was uh, video monitoring employees um, without due, I think, uh, reason to, or without uh, adequate kind of legal basis. Um, Six million euro fine in in Spain for a bank for consent and information failures and various kind of um, tens and hundreds of uh, thousand euro fines for uh, things like inadequate technical and organizational measures, uh, failure to notify breach without undue delay. So just looking at this snapshot in January, it seems to me that compared to two years ago, where we were still kind of getting up to speed with with enforcement, after all the nonsense and the suggestions of huge fines immediately, we are now starting to see um, businesses as usual uh, in the enforcement space, as in fines coming in uh, of good sizes from from supervisory authorities for uh, the types of things that people were always um, suggesting that, that would happen. Is that what you're seeing, or are you still thinking that we've, you know, the supervisory authorities in in the EU, the 27, and and are still not Um, enforcing with uh, the power or uh, force that was expected?
2: Well, the, the authorities are definitely enforcing the law. There's no doubt about that. And I always said, look, don't get too carried away by the big um, headlines of uh, the big fines and all that, because I think enforcement is much more nuanced than that. There, there are some big fines going on, and in addition to to the canals one that you mentioned from memory, uh, the Humber one issued 35 million euro last year, and of course the UK ICO, you know, uh, it, it probably uh, has the, the highest average. Uh, fine in terms of the number of fines and the the amount of the fines with the fines that issued last year for cyber security breaches so the data protection authorities are definitely enforcing the law they are enforcing the law not just for either cyber security or the odd uh, breach of uh, I don't know uh, direct marketing and all that. They are going for the difficult stuff. You know, the one that you referred mm-hmm, right. to about employee monitoring is to do with the grounds for processing. So this is this mm-hmm. is the real um, essence of data protection. Do you have a legal basis for processing personal data? This is sophisticated stuff that the data protection authorities are looking into. And we'll see what happens with international data transfers. So I never want to use enforcement as some kind of um, way of promoting data protection work, well, you have to do it because otherwise you're going to get hit. No, the, but the reality is that data protection enforcement is happening and, and the, the, the other angle of this is that it's not just about the amount of the fines, it's about the level of um, you know coordination amongst EU data protection authorities, and we are at a very critical point where the DPA is really, I think, having this transformation where you we, you still see mm-hmm. outliers, where some uh, actions are taking place without consulting the others, but at the same time, in the context of the EDPB, there is probably more coordination than we've ever seen in the history of European data protection. So I think... Uh, it's very interesting the the, the way in which, in fact, data protection authorities have matured over the past two or three years.
1: So you're seeing as part of that maturing over the last two or three years, as as, as well as the fact that you know uh, there's a sophistication in the types of enforcement that's happening. You're seeing the cooperation um, is developing, and 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 supervisory authorities across the 27 are combining or working together in collaboration on some of these these big ticket. Stories.
2: Absolutely. And as I said, there I mean, we still see and we'll maybe we'll talk later about the one-stop-shop and how critical mm-hmm. that is. But uh, it's, um, it's almost like the tectonic plaques are moving in the world of uh, data protection enforcement where you still see some uh, data protection authorities going solo and saying, Well, I'm going I'm going after this company and then the lead the data protection authorities saying, Oh, but hold on a second, but I'm the lead and so this and a, a, a bit of that. But um right. I'm saying, we shouldn't disregard the fact that um, the law is too complicated and the, the the data protection authorities are not enforcing the law as there were some sort of criticism being made perhaps a year ago. I think I think the times to, to be critical about the lack of enforcement uh, are gone.
1: Certainly looks that way. Alexis, anything you've noticed in terms of enforcement trends in, in the last year or even in recent months?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just following on from Eduardo's point about enforcement is certainly happening. I think, you know, Eduardo cited a few things there that uh, are those those headlines, but there are, Uh, there are a number of fines being issued uh, from month to month, and they might not always make these grand million euro fines. But if we have a look at the Spanish AEPD, for example, uh, they release decisions, enforcement uh, penalties, enforcement notices, uh, pretty regularly. The Romanian DPA is also very active. We've seen a lot of uh, enforcement of late in uh, Norway, for example. So, I think Poland as well. It, it's yeah, Poland. Yeah, great point. Uh, so, I think it's it's there, and it might not always be those huge fines that 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 make it um, into the headlines. But uh, you know, if you go just beneath the surface a little bit, you'll see um definitely activity and i think just coming back to eduardo's point on for for what reasons or what kinds of issues the dpas are examining i think that's a really interesting point as well eduardo mentioned a couple already we've seen also enforcement around uh you know the principles of privacy by design by default which i think is uh you know very interesting considering that that is was brought into the GDPR as a legal requirement,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: there were questions around whether we would see enforcement activity around those provisions, and we yep. have done. Um, so I think you know there there is a lot there to dissect and to analyze, um, and to have a look into, rather than yeah mm-hmm. just just some of those headline figures that that might get maybe more discussion.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Good stuff, okay, so let's just move on to the one-stop shop, as, as you mentioned there, Eduardo. So um, in terms of cooperation between supervisory authorities, there's been a lot of discussion in January, um, particularly after, I think it was a uh, the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice um, made a statement or an opinion uh, referring to super- supervisory authorities pursuing their own cases um, against companies that they feel are non-compliant or suspect. Uh, even if they're not the lead uh, supervisory authority for that for that organisation, so can we just unpack that a little bit? What what depth does that have? Has that statement actually been taken out of context a bit, um, or mm-hmm. you know, is that actually a sign of the way things might go in terms of the one stop shop mechanism?
2: Sure. Okay. So I think post GDPR, there is a tension. I think between the fact that we have one pan-European regulatory framework, but still 27 EU member states with uh, at least one data protection authority each. So the one-stop shop was the way in which the European, not just the European Commission, but the European Parliament and the EU member states decided to uh, find a way to make that compatible. And what is very interesting is that, as I was saying, the the tectonic plaques of of European data protection enforcement are still moving. But the opinion by the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice last week on on this case around whether the Belgian Data Protection Authority could issue proceedings, in the Belgian courts against a company like Facebook, which has a data protection, uh, lead supervisory authority in Ireland with a valid mechanism and all that. And essentially the advocate general is coming very strongly in favor of the one-stop shop. It's basically saying, look, the agreement was made by the EU member states and and all the legislative bodies to go behind this arrangement where one lead authority is the, the the competent authority for what is called cross uh, border processing so pan european data processing and that is the role but of course like all rules there are exceptions for situations that uh, where the other data protection authorities despite the cross border data processing the other data protection authorities have a degree of competence but those are exceptional circumstances which Uh, are written in the law and that uh, fall outside the scope of the one-stop shop. But ultimately, if we are talking of a situation which is within the scope of the one-stop shop and the lead supervisory authority is acting, then that is the competent data protection authority. And these this, uh, uh, complaints and whining about all oh, these data supervisory authority, this least supervisory authority is not coming strongly enough or, or is, is too business friendly or whatever, or whatever <laughs> arguments are being made, those can be resolved through the mechanisms that exist in the GDPR. And it's not for one single DPA to say, well, I don't care. About the one-stop shop, this authority is not is not really uh, uh, acting as they should. So I'm going to take action. I think um, that's what is happening. We'll see. With the obviously, this is just the opinion; it's not the final decision. But I, I I wasn't surprised to see the fact that the European Court of Justice, as a as a body, or or the Advocate General at this stage, is defending. The one-stop shop, because it's what the GDPR established as the, the enforcement mechanism, and it's one of the pillars. It's one of the pillars of the GDPR. So I think, and that that is, I would be very surprised if, uh, if, if the uh, if the if the court doesn't agree with the position of the Advocate General, Alexis. Anything to add to that?
0: No, not really. I I think. Um... Maybe coming a little bit back to Eduardo's other point on the the administrative side of things, the the focus from the EDPB um, side in terms of working through that uh, that the mechanism and getting those decisions through. I think you know this opinion, and then of course later on we'll see the CJU uh, final judgment, but. Um, as Eduardo says, you know, uh, not huge expectations on them taking a, a different approach. I think uh, the focus will be on how the one-stop shop mechanism itself continues to work. I know that there's been a few comments uh, from from people within the community and even the DPAs themselves on how uh, efficient the mechanism is at the moment. and I think they've just been working through it. As Eduardo described, it's a big, big change uh, for the DPAs and something that I think that they've been getting used to. And I think you know, it will be interesting to see over the course of this year how we continue to see the, the decisions from LPAs in consultation with other DPAs that may be affected or impacted by the cross border processing. I, that will be an interesting one to, to track.
1: Good stuff, okay. Well, we're near the, the top of the hour and uh, final question really for me to, to each of you is, what are the interesting developments, cases, issues that you, you know, yourselves will be tracking personally and professionally in the next few months? So uh, a couple of examples um, from you, Alexis, what are you looking forward to, uh, say, end of winter and spring? So, I think um, laws and regulations
0: changing is just always on my uh, list, and especially at the moment, if we have a look across to the U.S., for example, we're starting to see that uh, maybe flurry, uh, maybe I'm preempting it, uh, but similar to last January, there was a little bit of a flurry of state bills being proposed. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to the CP- CCPA. Obviously, now at the end of last year, we had the CPRA. And again, I think that's provided a little bit of momentum. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we've transitioned um, a little bit from, as Eduardo was describing, those first six months of last year. You know, I think mm-hmm. legislatures are, are putting data privacy back on the agenda, especially at the US state level. So we've seen New York, we've seen Minnesota, we've seen Washington. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to continue over the next few months. Of course, you know, wider afield as well. Always at the moment, very interesting things happening um, in the Asia Pacific region.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So definitely a few things to, to track there. Um, you know, as we kind of move into the summer, we'll also see things in South Africa, of course, uh, in terms of Papia, we'll also see the LGPD, mm-hmm. uh, the enforcement provisions come into effect there. So, definitely laws and regs always keeping me busy. Um, I guess more immediate coming back to our, you know, first discussion point around SHREMS-2 having a look at those finalized EDPB recommendations and finalized SCCs. Um, um, but then uh, I guess the, the only other uh, thing uh, we might see over the next few months especially is um, obviously we, we are starting to see the rollout of uh, vaccinations in various different countries. Um, and I think that will again, bring to the forefront, um, you know, some questions on how to, uh, you know, have a look at issues around employee privacy um, and things, you know, from a wider maybe public authority nature as well, not just thinking about the private sphere. So I think uh, we'll see a few things around that over the next couple of months as, you know, vaccinations pick up um, and- Uh, become a little bit more with us.
1: Good stuff. Okay, and uh, what's on your to-do list, as we said earlier in the in the podcast, uh, Eduardo, for the next few months?
2: Yeah, well, well, Alexis and I, uh, I think, went to John Lewis and bought the sa- exactly the same crystal ball because I, I was I was thinking <laughs> on the same line. But anyway, no,
1: uh, not together. You weren't bubbling at the same. It's <laughs> just a joke.
2: <laughs> so no, I, I. I... Entirely agree with, with Alexis around the big the big themes of international data transfers and all the stuff that we've been talking about previously Brexit I, I I'm glad you raised COVID because we hadn't discussed this today but um, in the same way in the first half of last year COVID was a key issue from a data protection perspective. I think in the first half of 2021, COVID is, is still going to be. Uh, for the reasons you, you're saying, and uh, last year we were talking about uh, sort of temperature check but this year we're going to yeah. be talking about uh, I don't know, back, vaccination passports and test certificates, negative test certificates and the sharing of data in this of this context. So I think what is really, really important is that that is still done in compliance with data protection. And I think we're going to see the need for, for example, data protection impact assessments in relation to COVID-related mm-hmm. data sharing. A couple of other points perhaps to, to add that we haven't touched on. One is still cyber security. That that uh, challenge yeah. has gone away, and uh, even even today, the the EDPB was uh, providing some new guidance on on cyber security. And I think we need to bear in mind that the the GDPR and other uh, framework work around the world uh, have shifted the position here where there is a, a greater degree of transparency or there has to be a greater degree of transparency about data incidents and the, the vulnerabilities around cybersecurity are much more visible. So that will continue to be a, a big issue. And then the other thing that we started to see last year and we'll see what happens in 2021 is privacy litigation where uh data subjects themselves or those acting on their behalf are <laughs> taking advantage of the of the rights that exist under the law to claim damages for breaches of all mm-hmm. types of, 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 of breaches of of data protection law and we see and and i think that's an evolving uh, area where um, in addition to the enforcement that we were talking about earlier is is really um forcing organizations to, to think very carefully about the consequences or of, of the risk base of of not, not approaching compliance in a in a truly holistic way because we, we as i said we saw last year the emergence of some sophisticated uh, actions for all kinds of of breaches, and I think that will continue to to grow in Europe in a way that perhaps we've never seen before.
1: Good stuff. Okay, well, yep, a cohesive crystal ball shared by both of you with some interesting points in there. Um, Listen, it's been great to catch up, great to chat as ever. We'll have another uh, That Privacy Up episode in a few months when, uh, as you said earlier, one of the dust settles from the year a little bit, and we... We get some clarity on the issues we've talked about today. We've talked about international data transfers, Brexit, e-privacy regulation, which, as Alexis predicts, is going to be huge this year. Just just joking. (laughs) Um, one stop shop mechanism and cooperation uh, between supervisory authorities and, of course, enforcement. So loads of big issues to kind of see where we are uh, with in a few months. So looking forward to catching up with you guys in the early spring and, um, yeah, for another episode of That Privacy Podcast. Thanks for your time today, guys.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much, both. See you soon. Cheers. That Privacy Podcast. Brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells.